Well, hello, it's producer Casey. This week, we've got a fun episode for you. Back in July, we hosted a special live edition of the show over on Twitch, something we like to call Twitch and Shout. Our live shows are obviously a little more free-flowing than the typical podcast episode. We review Terry Hemmert's Breakfast with the Beatles playlists on WXRT. We pull cards from Trivial Pursuit Beatles edition. We take audience questions and comments. Maybe the most fun thing we do is bring on guests who also have special ties to the Beatles and their music. So today we present one of those conversations, now neatly edited, and including a bunch of musical drops and bits to bring the conversation to life. If you'd like to be part of our live episodes, be sure to keep an eye on our podcast feed or join us on Discord. Our merry band of Beatle buffs gather online to talk about the latest news, share favorite bootlegs, pitch episode ideas, and get early access to new episode drops. And it's also where you'll be the first to know about upcoming Twitch and Shout live shows. So come hang with us on Discord. You can find a link in the show notes for this episode. All right, that's all I got. So let's get this show started. Untitled Beatles podcast. Yes, uh, Greg Norman is a uh, he's a freelance recording engineer and he's worked at Electrical Audio in Chicago for many years. It's a studio owned and operated by uh, Steve Albini, the also a legendary recording engineer in his own right. Uh, bands that Greg has recorded include Andrew Bird. Both Kim Deal and The Breeders. Guided by Voices. Local H. And uh, countless indie bands, including all of the bands that I've played in and uh, my favorite Chicago band of all time, The Bitter Tears. Uh, please welcome to here to Twitch and Shout, the one and only Greg Norman. Hi, Greg. Hello. How are Greg. you, man? Welcome to me. Yeah, I was murdered. Now, Greg, it looks like, uh, is that your studio, like your home studio behind yeah, you? Yeah, this is the uh, new version. You've been here once before. That's yeah. That old console. Yeah, man. And over there, the tape machines. And that's a Studer, right? Yeah. That, the guy on the left is a big old fancy Studer 24 track, 2-inch 24 track. So the machine that uh, the Beatles used to record on from like Sgt. Pepper on was like a B6, uh, C6, uh, sorry, I'm getting crazy now. C37, it's a four track, one inch machine. It's like the old grandpa of this 24 track. And, and that's a, a Studer. And then the, the one next to it is an eight, two track, like a thing you would mix down to. And that was made in 1982. And the one on the left was made in 1989. So that's how far away it is from, you know, 1969, but whatever. But, yeah, man. Awesome. When I was recording with you, we were using those, those two machines, I think, right? Yeah. For the most yeah. part, yeah. 
They've been around my place. I've owned the big fancy one since 2005. I drove it to Montreal. I bought it from a cartoon production facility, French Canadian <laughs> cartoon production facility, who That's obviously awesome. saw no future in analog recording. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't you re- didn't you record Blackheart Procession up in Montreal or something uh, like that? Uh, Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Well, what did so you, you, you saw it get back the whole thing, the Peter Jackson thing? You saw that when it came out? Yeah, it was, it was great. It was a perfect, like, uh, I mean, because it came out during the pandemic, I felt like it, it could have been like 26 hours probably, and I would have been yeah. fine. I mean, I know it would have been a lot of work to do that, but I would have been up for it. <laughs> and I think people yeah. would have watched it. Um, I think that's what we learned is that we're like, it's even after eight hours, we're still like insatiable or whatever. Like we still want more even after all that. Yeah. I mean, we're so used to this, uh, serial kind of like TV show kind of thing that goes on and on and on. And like, I, I was left wanting more and like, I would have watched them sit around talking, smoking cigarettes, like talking about something stupid that has nothing to do with the Beatles and (laughs) just to get into that world for a bit, like instead of a fake, you know, Mad Men version of the world, it would be like (laughs) a real thing. You think your friends are going to be jealous when they find out you're going to see the Beatles? What? You heard me. Let me ask you this. When you watched it, did it feel like you were at work at times? You know, I definitely recognized some of the, yeah, the, the, the drama and like the sort of therapeutical sort of aspects of like what you do in a studio. If, if you, if you're trapped in a studio with like people for long stretches of time and they all want to be doing something else or they want to prove something to each other, like, you know, say when George, he wants to sort of, show that he's much more than what he thinks the other people think he is <laughs> you know what i mean uh yeah man yeah and, yeah and negotiating that and trying to you know like i've been in situations usually it's like i'm recording bands and it's like between four to eight days as opposed to like 30 days or something like that and so that that gets compressed into like a little nugget of like extreme emotion when things sort of melt down with a band and you kind of have to like sort of manage it and make it Make things move forward. Should we go for lunch? Is it lunch already? No, yes. Uh, I think I'll be le- uh, leaving what? the band now. When? Now. I noticed that sort of stress. And then also when they moved to the Apple Studios, the uh, just the makeshift, makeshift nature of things and just having cables running through doorways and like just like the guy who was supposed to build the studio was a total flake and didn't actually do it right. And magic had, Alex, uh, our, our favorite magic Alex. Magic yeah. Alex. Where did you get Alexis from? I mean, not, not for pie color television. No, he was in England and John Dunbar asked him if he'd stay and build a light machine for the Stones tour. Yeah. Hello, I'm Alexis uh, from Apple Electronics. Uh, I would like to say hello to all my brothers around the world and uh, to all the girls around the world and to all the electronic people around the world. And they had to call on their rich friends to <laughs> bail them out again, EMI and <laughs> like, uh, and EMI dutifully just like, you know, obviously they probably got charged a, 
a bajillion dollars and but they moved to mountains to like make a dysfunctional studio a, a barely functional studio <laughs> <laughs> and and i yeah, i totally recognize like all the sort of demands like it's funny watching uh glenn john sort of try to act cool in this situation where he's, he's got his like fur you know, <laughs> yeah. thing on and he's trying to like, you know, he's like, yeah, why don't we try to do this thing? And it's like, and then like, he's getting bugged by six other people. It's like, hey, where do we get, put this shit? And like, where do we put these cables? And it's like, why is it feeding back? You have me yeah. I can tell he's like trying to maintain this level of like, I'm, I'm going to try to, produce this thing i'm this is an open door kind of chance for me to do this production thing and people are just throwing these wrenches at his face the entire time <laughs> i remember you uh, when we were recording one of our things one time i remember you using um, a glenn john's miking technique for the drums where it was like two mics were pointed at each other over over the floor tom or something like that if i recall and i remember it looked cool it looked bitching yeah that's that's it. one thing is great it looks awesome no um <laughs> i need i i was missing the sixteen thousand dollars of microphone to do it <laughs> but uh but yeah you'd you'd have like a like you'd seen all the photos like and for that record you'd have like usually something like a u67 or a condenser mic or a cold sitting on top over the drum kit kind of over the snare drum and then another one kind of off the the floor tom and he'd pan those a little bit left and right and he'd have one kick drum mic and then maybe a snare drum mic. So like the idea is like you'd have three and the overhead would catch the snare and rack tom and the guy right over the floor tom would catch the floor tom and the ride cymbal, the snare would be picked up by the overhead and you'd get it all. I remember that going to like a tape op conference in 2000 tape op is like a magazine recording magazine. And yeah, it was a fun sort of nerd get together that we'd all do. Like we'd go to like uh, Portland or somewhere in Arizona and there'd be this, you know, it's like the junior junior varsity uh, recording uh, conference where instead of NAM or AES, we'd be like our cool little friends of makeshift studio people. And uh, that was all the rage. I, all anyone would talk about is like, what mics are you using for your Glenn Johns mic technique? And it's like, <laughs> and like, you know, I would try it a bunch of times and I would hate it because it wouldn't sound, you know, like what I thought it would be. Plus I'm not recording anyone that sounded like Ringo Starr or, you know, John Bonham. It was usually like, you know, math rock drummers and <laughs> proggy kind of yeah. metal drummers. And, and they wanted to hear every single ghost note, every, everything, Ah. Every little every little thing they did, they wanted to hear perfectly shining <laughs> through like eleven distorted guitars and you know thunderous <laughs> like distorted bass. And so like the Glenn Johns technique doesn't really work so well for that. It's like more for like if you're recording a Neil Young type band, you could get away with it. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, no, it's a it's a cool sound if you're recording kind of a good tempered drummer playing dynamically well with the band around it and not like smashing the cymbal as hard as you can or she can and you know and it's simple you know back in that time you were a freak if you used more than four or five microphones on drums <laughs> and right, now, right now now you use twelve to sixteen if you're 
if you're you'd be a freak if you didn't use 12 or 16 mics on drums get all those room mics in the back and all that kind of a thing yeah and like i said like oh what if i need to turn up the hi-hat it's like no one needs to turn up the (laughs) hi-hat you don't need a hi-hat mic you don't need a you don't need like half the stuff well what did you think i i was i've always been fascinated with those the vocal mics they were using at apple Mm. and those tiny like don't they look like Bob Barker mics, TJ? Like they're like yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put like pantyhose over them or whatever. Yeah, and the sound that they got out of them is stunning. I sounds like a real mic. Good. Yeah. Do you know what those are? Do you know anything about those? I've never seen those. Yeah, those are AKG C30s. They're really, really rare. Um, <laughs> the more popular version of it is the AKG C28, which is a it's just a tube condenser microphone that AKG made. That was like a utility you know, sort of mic that you'd use for instruments. But that was like a, a special adapter. The base of it, you know, you usually see, another, you know, the C28 and it's just a normal microphone looking thing. But uh, the C30 is the, the only thing that makes it a C30 is this long gooseneck kind of thing that ends up with like yeah. a little capsule at the end. And the capsule is like a good quality, fancy, small condenser mic which you'd use on things like strings and guitar, acoustic guitar. And and you could use it for vocals. Um, it's just like a high quality, high fidelity mic. And that looks like a, you know, a PA mic at a game show or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, they just like, I think they just put a little piece of foam just for like blocking the P's and B's like they call them plosives. The, yeah. The kind of noise. And, uh, it's so funny, like uh, people are one takeaway I have and a lot of uh, people that I've talked to have, have had with watching this series is how people have gotten really, really precious about gear these days. Sure. Like They buy, you know, they have to have like six guitars and they have to be of this vintage from this year, from this country and this <laughs> this paint finish. And and <laughs> same same thing with the recording world. You have to have like this mic and it had to have been made by this, you know, company by the same company but before they moved factories to here and you yeah know, they had to use a tube that was ma- yeah exactly you had to get it with when the tubes were made in you know a special part of germany that you know doesn't make tubes anymore or whatever and uh it's just funny to see like see that series and watch them singing into the side of the microphone and and playing only one guitar the entire time through and yeah, <laughs> yeah. they didn't have that like epiphone, a uh, john just played that that epiphone was his that was like his only guitar. It's right. Like. Yeah. yeah. And they just like drop it on the floor. They didn't really care about it that much. Guitar fell over, Paul. Guitar fell over. They didn't have like a wall of guitars that they'd just be picking through and like, oh, for this song, I think I might, you know, do this thing. And it's like, they're just like, let's play it. <laughs> yeah. It was not the Wilco house, the Wilco compound. <laughs> exactly. But substitute Which is anyone. a wonderful place, by the way. I'm just saying it wasn't that because they had no. their own guitar. The Wilco thing's a, a museum. I, I work there uh, like once in a while. Like, oh, yeah? I, did a re- I recorded wow. Autumn Defense, which is a couple of guys sure. from the band, band Wilco. The offshoot, yeah. Then I do tech work and, and Moonlight is a tech 
studio tech guy because I'm I have like these oh I can fix like random old stuff which is kind of my little side gig. Yeah, don't you have your own board stuff too that you sell? Like a yeah, I make micro microphone preamplifiers. Preamps, and, yeah, yeah, and like yeah, yeah. I make custom little recording widgets that I started doing that because I couldn't afford fancy stuff. So I'd just see how they built it and just try to copy it. And that's cool. cool. And yeah, it's really cool. That's a, that's a whole cottage industry. Now it's like if you, the web is, you don't have to know anything except for how to solder now. <laughs> and <they> can, <laughs> you can copy pretty much anything that was made anywhere, uh, which I kind of chafe at a little bit just because I had to wait till a magazine got delivered to me and look inside <laughs> it and read. <laughs> Six to eight weeks, man. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Are you for real? It's so hard to tell from just a magazine. Now you you got to visit Abbey Road, didn't you? Like you went into it. What? Yeah. Tell us about that. What was that like? Um, it's funny because uh, I was. Uh, this rarely happens where I do a record with Steve. Steve Albini runs Electrical Audio or owns Electrical Audio. Uh, he was going over to Wales to record the Manic Street Preachers, which is a band that's popular over there and sort of popular here, but more popular over there. I, I guess he just wanted me to come along to help. I don't know. Like, I, I don't really know why he asked me to help sometimes, but I'm just like, oh, I'll go to Wales. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, also uh, you're, 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 you know, you're kind of good at what you do. There's that too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Is but that... he's, he's, he's already doing some of most of that stuff, sure, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think he likes the idea that if something breaks, I can sort of help him get it work around it. But you uh, can be the Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, exactly. I could be the whatever, I can be Mal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we went to that studio that um, uh, Queen recorded at. Um, shoot, I'm forgetting about it. It's like a, in the farm. It's got a, a quadrangle studio. It's like a studio built in the farm, and it's, I'm blanking on the name of it now. But it's a famous studio, and uh, we had like two weekends off to go to London. And uh, I asked him, like, because Steve has done a couple of sessions or lots of sessions at Abbey Road, actually. He was at a period in the late 80s, early 90s when Abbey Road wasn't that faint, wasn't that like uh, desired as a studio place. It had a lot of old gear, hadn't updated itself that much. And it seemed like an old sort of, yeah, Rockfield Studios. Thank there you. There you go. Um, Thanks, yeah, Casey. So, <laughs> so like a, <laughs> yeah, we went to London and we'd stay in London. And the first weekend we listened to the Cubs get knocked out of the playoffs really quickly. And that was that was a hilarious, sad experience of us 2004, staying. 2004, 5? 2008. Oh, like, yeah. That was the, the Dodgers. He went around, strike three, the game is over, and the Dodgers sweep. Yeah. yeah, that was a quick three games. That's right. Three games. And they had like the best record that year or something. Uh-huh. Was, and we were like staying up to like five in the morning to watch these stupid games and watch them lose. And oh, the last right. one of the games, we were in one of these tiny uh, hotels in London. And like I could get half of the audio, the radio on my like phone. <laughs> and he could get the video somehow on his, on his laptop. <laughs> And like, so we'd watch it on the laptop and like on whenever the break commercial breaks would happen, you wouldn't have any commercials or just hear the crowd noise. And it's just like this. Oh, quiet, that's cool. It was a really soothing, quiet crowd noise <laughs> at Wrigley Field. Like, they were losing pretty quickly. So it was quiet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we both just sort of fell asleep before. I mean, like it was just a very sleepy 
uh, playoff game where the Cubs lost. Anyways, so we did that. He went gambling. He likes going to play poker and gamble a bunch. Like, so he goes to a casino and plays poker and says, Hey, what do you, I asked him like, what if we go to Abbey road one of these times? He's like, Oh yeah, that should be no problem. He calls his friend at Abbey road. So we, we go there and like, it was super great. There was like a, a engineer there that gave us a walking tour through the entire place. And Oh, cool. So you saw like all three, is it three, three studios yeah there? there's three main studios there's like a studio one which is a huge orchestra one and that yeah. was magnificent uh of course studio two is the one i was most curious about that's the beatles one and like yeah they had a some stuff just sort of like laying around the lady madonna piano is in there still and oh, like wow, he's, he's like hey it's the piano and it's like and it's like you should play i'm like i'm not gonna play i don't know how to play piano. <laughs> it's like wow it's <laughs> like I'm not gonna try to play Lady Madonna on the piano, uh, but but that's we'll, awesome! Yeah, like that's, that's so insane. The third studio is the most un Beatles like studio you can imagine. It's like a, it was designed in the '80s by some Japanese Aww. architect, and it's all like sharp angles and mirrors and bright colors and stuff. And it's it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> that's and that's funny. the one I have the most dreams about, actually. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just so bizarre. And there was a and there was a version of my 24 track in there that I had never seen before, and I was just confused by that and i wanted to more I, we were like going through the studio and i'm like i'm half interested in the recording history and i'm also half interested in the technology because they would build all their own stuff there they had all their own like right they had their own emi engineers or whatever they were doing over there yeah they used to build their own consoles their own tape machines even um yeah there wasn't like professional console companies it's just you know if you're a record company you built it all yourself like the studio from the ground up and and they had you know emi complexes around the world like they had you know a studio in sweden a studio in africa somewhere and they had That's studio where in... paul did band in the rum was in lagos yeah. nigeria he looked at a list of emi studios around the world and was like where do you want to go and that's yeah. where he that's where he went and um... he got mugged he got mugged <laughs> if i ever get out of Where I was today, there's a studio, a guy bought the Swedish uh, EMI console from that era. So like there's a TG12345, which is the console that they put in uh, to Abbey Road Studios uh, at the time of Get Back, but they didn't use it for Get Back, obviously. But right. it was there, that was the console that recorded Abbey Road, the record Abbey Road. And, and people sort of talk about the different sound of Abbey Road compared to the older albums as being part of that because it had these compressors that are now famous built into every channel had that same compressor and so it just had like a, a transistor sound instead of a tube sound rubber soul is like a fantastic sounding record yes and and Abbey Road's a fantastic sounding record. They're all great sounding records in their own right, but I feel like quality wise, like sound quality wise, like I feel like those two are kind of like, you know, good high points.
there's a question I wanted to ask you along those lines. As a producer and as an engineer, what are your thoughts on when Giles Martin and his team remix Abbey Road and Pepper? Because my thought is, I mean, I think they're great, but to your point, the original Abbey Road and even the original 1988 CD remaster with a relatively primitive digital technology was still a lovely CD. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, are you pro remixes as a cool thing? Do you think they're bullshit? Do you think it just crass commercialism? Is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, I didn't like those particular remixes. Um, I don't have a problem with remixing in general, but like, I remember listening to the White Album remixed and and just being confused why, you know, well, for one thing, you fall in love with the way the album sounds and that's how you like it. And and there's no reason to, you know, no one's looking to improve on that. It's like, no one's like, oh, I wish this album like had the guitar panned in the middle as opposed to the right <laughs> side because sometimes my right speaker is over there and I can't hear it as well. Um, or I wish they used this cool flange effect I heard on a Van Halen song. That would have been cool to hear on John Lennon's voice. You know, like no one's asking for that stuff. But like when I put on uh, like while my guitar gently weeps, I feel like I, I was making fun of it at the time as if like whoever was doing it was like scrolling through the menu of like some effects processor. It's like, okay, let's do this verse and this effect. And then like go to the next one. Let's do it in this effect. I think that's what they would have done in the 60s if they had this stuff. <laughs> you know. When you heard the White Album, you you heard you could hear like the different processors or the you know things in the console that c- can your can your ears pick up on th- those nuances on the original ones you mean Vers- versus the original? I mean, like, uh, yeah. well, well, the remixes definitely I could pick that stuff up because like the yeah. old albums are like that's like that's kind of like a natural like if if I listen to a song I've heard a bajillion times and then it goes left when it's supposed to go right, like that, then it's like immediately what the hell was that? Yeah. And, yeah, but yeah. I, like at the same time, I don't care that they did it. I think, you know, it's kind of like the Star Wars prequels. Like I don't like them, but probably some kid who was eight and watched them really like them. And I don't want to like ruin their fun. Excuse me. But I just don't see like the the cool thing about those whole all those reissues is just all the like the, like just the piling on the extras and the bonus the, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 really like where those shine through. I don't care that there's like seven different versions of let it be get back out there and it's like the get let it be naked didn't make any sense to me it's like when i first heard that was coming out it's like oh that sounds like the get back record they're gonna release that that's cool and it yeah. wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't that no, no. it was and like what's funny is that there are like there were edits in it or whatever if it was supposed to be naked like yeah right. you know <laughs> don't let me down don't two, let me down with right <laughs> two different takes you know sewn together yeah, Which I'm not against, but you know that was supposed to be the the, the concept. The concept, yeah, yeah. No, the, it was supposed to be a Paul Vanity project. God bless him. <laughs> Let it be naked. Was that's Paul trying oh, to okay. set the record straight? Many times I've been alone, and many times I've cried. Anyway, you've always known the many ways I've tried. I do remember when I, I got my first copy of the Get Back album that was mixed by Glenn Johns. Yeah, right. 
it was like, like a bootleg or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was that was amazing. That was after like a couple years, me being a teenager and like getting all these crappy bootlegs of these get back sessions where like, you know, basically it was just copies of the film, the film sync audio. And there's just yeah. With the, the Nagra beeping. Beeps, yeah, the, yeah, the beeps. <laughs> um, and just people like how like hollering in the background, like who are these annoyed people who are like I yelling won. yelling at each other and <laughs> like get that out of the way. I gotta get this over here. Like, and I, don't, I don't know if I'm doing the accent right, but like uh, the uh, That's a Michael Lindsay Hogg accent. Yeah, right. He's pretty he's pretty pushy. Thank you, Michael. Lindsay Hogg. Director of this epic, um, but yeah, like I'd listen to. There's, I think I had like ten CDs and like ten records, and you know, half of them covered the same ground. And it's like, oh, it's slightly better tape dub on the CD. <laughs> and yeah, I finally one day I was in. Every time I would go to Vintage Vinyl in Evanston. Yeah, man. One, once in a while, Thank and I'd you. ask the guy, like, "Do you have a get back copy?" And like, he's like. He always thought he did and never did, and uh, and then finally he actually did. And forty five dollars. Uh, yeah, it was forty nine ninety five. Right. I love it. It's vinyl, but bring some cash. Right. It's a. Uh, I don't know. I remember how much it was. Probably was something like that. But I remember listening to that more. I thought that was like I was more excited about that than any new record that I had bought. Like I was just like I I was you know reading or had read about it and the stupid recording the beatles book and all that sort of stuff and oh yeah i was just curious because it would describe like what was on that record and there's a song called teddy boy which i heard about and there's like a mm-hmm. multi-minute long version of dig it and all this sort of stuff and like i wonder if it's that crappy one with the guy yelling about the gap from like no way or something <laughs> um but yeah so like i put it on and listened and it was like it was it was just fantastic to hear like this stereo actual like fruit like finished mixed version of this record that I'd never heard pieced together like that. Ted used to tell her he knew twice as good and he knew he could cause in his head he said Mama don't worry now daddy boy's here taking good care of you Mama don't yeah like i just realized teddy boy is an awful song i remember that he recorded <laughs> that on his solo record too it ended up right yeah i wondered if it was like a better song as a beatles song but it wasn't glenn liked it like it was glenn that was pushing that one really <laughs> yeah pretty sure okay. well that that's the one where john breaks into the dosey dough john yeah. john's yeah. part with it every time every day <laughs> yeah. and there's like feedback which i was always confused about like <laughs> like why is there vocal amp feedback in a recording session and well I yeah that was when they had all those monitors those crazy weird uh-huh. uh those yeah. pas that were like tall like really tall all pointed at each other yeah, <laughs> it was like that was one of my favorite moments in in that when they were like complaining about the muddiness of the sound and like wanting to get it to be like the sound they had when they were in Germany or, or whatever. Like all we need is just these two things, like simplicity <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that's a, one of those engineer producer sort of situations. I kind of saw like you know 
a sweaty Glenn John sort of like nodding, like, okay, we'll try to get the stop feedback. And it's like, and I think they asked John to turn his amp down like six or seven times in the session. <laughs> like, it's like a totally like you don't want to have, okay, well, you want to hear your vocals, but you have a Fender twin turned up to the point where it's distorting, <laughs> which if anyone owns a Fender twin, they know that that's excre excruciatingly loud. And like, that's a weird thing about these, these songs. Like when they're playing in the rooftop, like they're distorted guitars and like a, yeah. that amp doesn't distort very easily. You have to fucking crank that thing to yeah. distort and when it's cranked it's 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 loud which makes I mean, me think that they're like partially deaf and and then like you know it would just seems like it, they had to have been deaf or something. <laughs> like but uh uh but yeah then they'd have to have to turn up that vocal pa to compete with all that loud loud stuff and and then there'd just be this boom when they stop singing and <laughs> and, and then also sounding like a misfits show And then it's, and then you and then you switch immediately to an acoustic song right after that, and like <laughs> everything has to be just right. <laughs> it's like well, well, the vocal PA well, has to be much much quieter. <laughs> what's your take, Greg, on how well the rooftop was recorded? I mean, given that it was outside in the winter with all the challenges, I think that's a technical marvel that I don't think is talked about enough, even pre the remix by peter jackson's team even the original recording is astonishing for all those challenges yes i think so yeah it's a again it's like uh it's, the setup is so simple that like you don't like you can kind of get away with that sort of stuff I, the and on some of the early I, bootlegs i had i could hear like wind noise i had like the i think one of the cds i had was like the entire 45 minute rooftop concert and that was sort of warts and all and you could kind of hear noise you know, fluffling here and there. And, and you could tell how cold they were too, because they're kind of constantly like complaining about that. <laughs> yeah. Don, especially with his finger, he's like, he, yeah, I remember his hands were freezing up. I think he, as early as dig a pony or something like that. Right. Which, and that it's, it's insane how well they were playing that stuff. Like after watching all the, what they were doing and then like when game game was on, they just like, they just turned it on. They like played through and got through everything and they hit everything rhythmically perfect. And like, you know, yeah everything just flowed so naturally it's like they're just there's just oh yeah they're they're like another breed of people they're like they've been playing together for millions of hours and it's just it like all, germany it was all those hours in yeah. germany that i think that it really was like that that was their muscles well and i also think it helped to not be able to hear each other during the stadium shows and still kind of read each other's physical yeah. language and connect without being able to hear in those shea shows and you know, in L.A., I mean, I, I, I think that was a big deal, too. I, it's also just, you know, right, like a, a group of people that have, that just know each other inside and out, but also just like knowing to turn it on. Like they just, you know, that whole that whole that whole show leading up to then is just them fucking around and learning the songs and, and getting, you know, learning the songs and figuring it out. And it sort of sets you up to think like, oh, you know, they're they're not so great. <laughs> they're not yeah. that great and then you and then like you put them on on the spot like perform and they're just like oh yeah we're great we're gonna just do this yeah. thing and have fun look like we're having fun doing it too like like it's easy my baby says you're traveling on the one after nine oh nine i said i move over honey i'm traveling on that line Move over once, move over twice Come on baby, 
have noticed like the musicians that are playing music all the time like that's like what they it just flows easily i recognize like if you're just doing music like every weekend or something like that it's it's a little bit more of like a struggle to get to that point and it's you're still like oh that first those first five shows are really rough and then like after five i'm feeling you know like naturally this is coming naturally and like for them like that first you know two years in 1962 1963 that was that and the rest of their lives have just been playing music and it flows easily and there's nothing all the yeah. stuff they we were watching them rehearse it was just them figuring stuff out paying attention to something else at the same time and yeah with the film crew filming them all the time and yeah it was yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh when are we gonna play in front of a bunch of arabs <laughs> right exactly. uh who's really pushing that for some reason I think they wanted to. Well, somebody, Lindsey Hogg wanted Lindsay to travel. Hogg. I think. Right. Yeah. He's really, really. He must have like had already like reserved a spot. I think he <laughs> had a like, vision. I think he really had the to hold the director's vision thing, you know, and was like, "I can see you," you know, with all the whatever. Fires. Yeah. <laughs> you also get to bill more when you're overseas. <laughs> it's it's um, a higher yeah. day rate. That's what I'm thinking. Like, I feel like he put ten thousand pounds down on a, <laughs> on a spot that he's on. He can't get back. Think of the lights in the water. Torch lit, 2,000 arrows. What about an orphanage? How does that grab you guys? Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, before. Great. Uh, do you have a favorite like Beatles album? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I do. I, I like, I, I went through the whole, like when I was younger, I had, I liked the earlier stuff. It's sort of like, and then kind of matured with it as I got became a teenager. But like, um, I feel like the, the album that has the most for me is the White Album. Mm. it's just got you and i agree on that that's that's my favorite too it's got it just covers a lot of bases it's it's like you know there's a lot of interesting there's a lot of space to like do different things and they did different things and they put it all out there and they were you know later on you you learn that they just had the guts to put it all out there like it wasn't there wasn't the internal fighting that like i thought they were like Paul didn't want this to go out you know, like this, you know, George Martin was going to quit if he, you know, this song, <laughs> but like, it's interesting to find out that like, if one of them wanted it on the record, they're like all supporting each other to let it go out on the record. And that was kind of a fun thing for me to learn later on. <laughs> supposed to, like, Except circles. They all said no to circles. <laughs> Well, you take care, Greg. I hope to see you IRL instead of URL. Uh, I'll, I'll look that up sometime very soon, man. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. This was fun. I'd, I'm sure I could I could talk about this for eight hours. <laughs> we should just have a live like it playing in the corner while we talk about it, and, just for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's keep this. <laughs> do our, let's do our own reaction video where we're not watching it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Give bye my, bye. Great give to my see you, Greg. And, Thanks uh, for coming. Greg Norman, everybody. That was great. Greg Norman from uh, Electrical Audio. If you have a band and want to get it recorded, uh, uh, you can do it at Electrical. Uh, uh, Greg also does stuff freelance. He's a, he's a, I've recorded so much with him, and he's a, a dear friend. When we, we were in a band called The Bitter Tears, and we toured Europe and the U.S. And Anyway, it's, he's a good dude, man. He's a good dude. I'm glad he can make it on this show.
Hey, hey, it's Casey again. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Thanks so much to Greg Norman of Electrical Audio for joining the show. As always, if you dig the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We really appreciate you listening and helping spread the good word. And now let's close the show with a little bit more from Greg Norman's band Bitter Tears. This is Frank, JP, and the Monkey. Podcast. Like and subscribe.